You're listening to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. You know, case counts are going down. Average daily new COVID cases have dropped by 35% over the past two weeks, but our health care infrastructure is still overburdened. Like many hospitals across the state, Hilo Medical Center on Hawaii Island approached a crisis situation at the height of the surge. Elena Kabatu is the center's director of public affairs, and she likened it to a hurricane that was heading straight for the island and broken up at the last minute uh, by Mauna Kea. She spoke with the conversation Savannah Harriman Pote about the aftershocks of the Delta variant. There has been news, particularly in the last week, that we are starting to see a downturn in both case counts as well as hospitalizations. Does that hold true for the community of Hilo as well? Yes, uh, that has that is holding true for Hilo, in which we have been seeing a decline of hospitalizations and new admissions for new COVID cases. Hospitalizations are hanging on a little bit, if you will, um, in terms of post-COVID. Those patients who are outside of the contagious time period, if you will, um, those folks are still with us in hospital and still very sick. So, I mean, for example, today we have 22 active COVID with 16 post-COVID. So that shows that in a matter of a few days, I think we, we will have more post-COVID than active COVID in our hospital, depending on new admissions. But um, just want to circle back to that to yeah. clarify, post-COVID is someone who is no longer testing positive yeah. for COVID-19, but is still recovering from the disease. How common is it that people continue to need to be hospitalized after they have no longer tested positive for COVID-19? Well, we're seeing that uh, that's one of the big differences in this surge versus the first uh, wave that we had last year is that those who required hospitalizations this this surge um, have been more sick, more severely impacted. Um, they are still in the hospital very ill. And earlier in the pandemic, when when patients went on the vent, at least they had some chance of coming off and recovering. In this surge, we are seeing that once a patient has to go on the vent, it's not good news after that. So we um, we try our very best to keep our patients off the vent. But um, as you can see, our numbers are reflecting that those who are post-COVID are still on vents and requiring a lot of care and resources still being outside the contagious phase, if you will. So even though there's hope in the fact that we are starting to see that decline, you are still dealing with the aftershock if it were on. Yeah, so yeah, so yeah, that's how I describe it too, is that this is the shakeout of this surge. We are dealing with still very sick folks that are out of the contagious phase of the disease. We are dealing with a lot of end-of-life conversations. Perhaps it's just really unfortunate. What I can tell you too is that we're still operating far beyond our ICU capacity. We have an 11-bed ICU, and today we have 16 ICU patients in-house that require that level of care. And so we can still see that you know, again, if they're out of the contagious phase, they still require a lot of care and they're very sick. And how is Hilo Medical Center doing in terms of resources, both in terms of staff and treatments? So in terms of staffing, we received a, a bunch of FEMA-funded personnel that came in to help us. And those, those staff that came to work shoulder to shoulder and care for our our patients with our staff, they were the lifeline for our staff in this surge. So today is actually the first day of our monoclonal antibody clinic downstairs with a separate entrance. And we're very excited to, to offer this to our community. And it's just one more tool in our toolkit to uh, care for our community with the caveat of saying that our main plea is for the community is to still get vaccinated if they haven't yet because uh, monoclonals are not an alternative to getting vaccinated. Vaccinations are highly effective and even more effective than monoclonals over a period of time. So, but we're very happy to have this tool in our toolkit. And I just want to clarify about that. These antibody therapies, how are they usually delivered? Are they also shots or some sort of transfusion? Right. So that was part of the clarity that came um, 
in the update uh, earlier in the summer. Initially, they were only used in hospitals because they were infusions through IV bags, and um, that's how it was administered to patients. Now, we're able to administer monoclonals in four different shots. Uh, I hear they're quite large shots, but, um, you know, nonetheless, they don't require being administered in a hospital setting, if you will. So that's why we're able to set up this clinic downstairs in the ground conference floor and administer the shots there. On the topic of vaccines, Kilo has passed the benchmark of 70% vaccinated, have completed vaccinations of those who are eligible. And that was what we had initially set as the milestone when we started our vaccine campaign. Now that we have gone to a place <laughs> where we do have that robust amount of community members who are vaccinated, but also have new considerations like new variants, what is the healthcare infrastructure or what are healthcare professionals in Hilo looking at as a new goal? Well, the, the new goal is, well, it's, you know, the goalposts seem to have shifted a little bit. As the hospital, we just keep on encouraging folks to get vaccinated because we do have pockets that have not reached that 70 plus percent vaccination rate. And uh, so I know you're looking for a concrete answer there of, of what what's the new end goal here. It's really to get to those people. There is a little bit of relief, at least to see in terms of the data of the numbers starting to go down. But comparatively to the feeling that there was in the middle of the summer, where we thought that this might actually be really behind us. And a lot of different hospitals across the state started to take down their overflow triage and started to shut down their COVID units. Is the feeling for the staff at Hilo Medical Center, are they a little bit more disillusioned <laughs> about the idea that this pandemic might end? You know, it, we are, we meet every day at 8 a.m., the leadership, those who are in charge of those uh, COVID areas. At the beginning of the surge, we incrementally expanded the COVID unit, and then we had to expand the ICU beds. Where are we going to put them? We put our heads together, and we just, we're still in that, that mindset of remain focused. We might be at the very beginning of maybe breathing a sigh of relief, but we are barely optimistic. Like, I don't know what you want to call it, but we are we are guarded and we're cautious in our reaction to seeing the numbers, you know, slow down and decrease. I think a lot of it is because the post-COVIDs are still with us. So we we still need to provide that attention to detail, to to staffing, to resources to make sure that that we can take care of those very sick patients. As someone who's been working in the healthcare industry for the duration of this pandemic, do you think we'll get back to a place where we feel like it's going to end? You know, there's talk about this becoming an endemic, kind of like the the flu in terms of always being around or, you know, it might be COVID season, like flu season happens. But when we were coming out of the spring, going into that early part of summer, we all had that hope of of some sort of return to normalcy. And then Delta woke us up. I suppose, I guess one way you could consider it is if the goal is to get everyone vaccinated, then even if the pandemic becomes something that is a part of life, integrated fully into society, the way we think of the flu, hopefully it'll become far more livable. Absolutely. In, mm -hmm. in your work at Gila Medical Center or the work of doctors treating patients who do work with breakthrough cases, what kind of data are you collecting about how ill they might be getting, what type of treatments they might need, or anything that you have about the different vaccines that they have received. Uh, we are monitoring um, who's getting vaccinated or who is vaccinated and who ends up in critical care, uh, which patient that is vaccinated ends up in critical care, um, and, uh, and what are maybe some of the underlying reasons. So we are tracking that. Um, we can still say that... Um, what we know is that those who are vaccinated are um, experiencing less severe disease and less uh, severe hospitalization. So I think the, the jury's out still on, on how we're going to interpret the data on, on long haulers and post-COVIDs. I think it's hard to compare this surge with the first surge 
in terms of long hauls because uh, we've seen that this Delta surge was such a different ball game than it was in the first surge. So it's almost apples to oranges. <laughs> what we can see in our data is that there was a clear distinction when breakthrough cases started because we weren't seeing any. And then, and then you can see when Delta came because the breakthrough cases started coming and the data is quite remarkable. That was Savannah Harriman Pote speaking with Elena Kabatu of Halo Medical Center on the Big Island. Halo Medical Center is currently analyzing its data on which vaccines people with breakthrough cases receive. It hopes to make their findings publicly available soon. President Joe Biden is spending time today with key Senate and the House Democrats to hopefully find a compromise on a trillion-dollar infrastructure bill and a three-trillion-dollar expansion of the social safety net that has divided the party. Those funds are expected to help with major road repairs across the country. Here in our state, that money could potentially be used to help rehabilitate Kolekole Bridge on Hawaii Island. It's been undergoing emergency repairs since last week causing long traffic delays on the only road in and out of Hilo along the Hamakua coast. The Conversations Russell Subiano spoke with Hawaii County Council Member Heather Kimball about the status of the bridge. Can we start with the current status of where the bridge is at, what the weight limit is? As of Monday evening, the weight limit on Kolekole on the highway has been lifted up to 12 tons. And that allows for most emergency vehicles and transit vehicles to cross the bridge. It is still being flagged one-way traffic, so there is still some congestion around the area, and people should drive with caution. In the last week, the weight limit was reduced to four tons. Can you yes. can you kind of give us an idea of what four tons looks like? Is that a car or a bus or a semi? What What is the equivalent? The four tons is, is roughly a, a pickup truck and, and passenger vehicles. So any of your larger transport trucks to, to transport agricultural products, buses, fire trucks, ambulances would all have been above that four-ton limit. And so at the four-ton limit, I think I saw some pictures of cars being alternated one at a time over the bridge. Is that right? That's correct. At the four-ton limit, they were restricting traffic to one vehicle at a time crossing the bridge. What happens or what happened when a larger vehicle needed to go in that direction? Did they just steer clear of that area? Or, or I know like old Mamalahoa Highway runs down into the valley and then back up. Was that available for larger vehicles? No. Okay. So um, one of the particular challenge about this bridge being closed for the, the larger vehicles is that there is no alternate route. The, all, the old Mamalahoa in this area has two bridges that are also closed and have been closed on Hurricane Lane. So there is no alternate route. So both northbound and southbound trucks, larger vehicles were being stopped at a point where they could turn around and, and go back the other way because there was no alternate. And so, for instance, like semi-trucks, they just had to plan ahead and maybe go the other way around the island if that was the destination? That's correct. Okay. Um, we tried to get as much information as we could out there as yeah. quickly as possible so that plans could be made to, to take the saddle, which is really the only alternate to get between the north and south side of Hamakua. And now that the weight limit is back up to 12 mm -hmm. tons, what does that look like? How, how many vehicles are allowed to cross over now? So they're still keeping it to roughly the equivalent of 12 tons. So, you know, maybe three passenger vehicles, maybe one large truck. They're making that judgment call as vehicles are arriving. But traffic is still backed up somewhat and people should plan ahead okay. <laughs> for, for wait time. That sounds like the most important thing to mm -hmm. get out to the public, right, is plan ahead know yes. that there's going to be traffic in that Kole Kole area and to take an alternate route. 
And the alternate route is significantly longer. Right. If you're going to have to go from Honoka'a via saddle, it's, it's a significantly longer drive than, than just coming straight down Highway 19. But it's just as scenic, right? There's, oh, just as beautiful, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> yeah, just, yeah, it's yes. got some great views there as well. What's yeah. the reason behind the need for the weight reduction? I imagine it has to do with something structural with the bridge. Yeah, so the state DOT was conducting an inspection of the bridge and found that four of the trusses had structural deterioration. And so between the initial reduction of weight limit to four tons and what we're at now, 12 tons, they have been able to do some emergency welding on two of the four trusses. That is what has allowed them to increase that weight limit to 12 tons. I imagine some emergency repairs are being planned for the bridge, or maybe they're already in action. What's the estimated timeline for getting the bridge back to its full weight limit? So the estimated time for repairs is three to four months, and that's, of course, dependent on the availability of materials. I don't know, for example, if they're going to need to bring in new steel. And of course, we know there's a global shortage on steel. So that could impact certainly the repairs. But the the repairs began almost immediately after the closure. And it was also declared a, a traffic emergency by the governor, which was great because it allowed the process to be speeded up somewhat so that they could get right to work and do those initial repairs so that the weight limit could be increased. Kolekole Bridge was mm-hmm. built in the early 1900s as a railroad bridge for sugarcane trains. Mm-hmm. I believe it's the second longest bridge on Hawaii Belt Road at 500 feet long. If you haven't been down into the valley, down into the bay, and looked up the, at the bridge, it's it's quite a thing to see. It's, uh, it is. <laughs> it's like in the movies, right? It's like looking at big railroad bridges in the movie. That's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. And mm-hmm. I know that after the 1946 tsunami, it was repaired using steel salvaged from the Wailuku River Bridge, which was destroyed in that tsunami and converted to a bridge for automobiles in 1951. We can see how this bridge has been around for a while and, and how it's gone through a transformation. Is this bridge on a list to be rehabilitated like Umama Bridge or eventually replaced down the road? Yeah, both Kolekole and Hakalau Bridge, which is another fabulous, beautiful historical bridge that is, is fascinating to see from the valley down yeah. below, are on the DOT's State Department of Transportation's list to be repaired. The thing that I'm working on right now is to make sure that they're also on Haima's list because having talked to Senator Schatz's office, you know, I wanted to set us up, if possible, to get some of the bridge money that is within the infrastructure package that's being debated in Congress right now. And that was the recommendation from their office is to make sure it was not only on the DOT list, but also the Hyema list. So I've reached out to the state rep- representative, Mark Nakashima, and um, the state senator, Lorraine Inouye, to make sure that we have that on that list as well. Hakalau is, is 21 on the state DOT's list, and Kolekole was at 37. I don't know if this current deterioration will actually boost it up on that list, but I'm hoping so. It sounds like those are the two bridges with the highest priority, at least on Hawaii Belt yes. Road. I know yeah. that Nanui Bridge is, is the longest and has a similar time frame as mm-hmm. Kole Kole. Is Nanui Bridge, is that solid or is that also going to be on the list at some point? I suspect that it will be, if, if it's not already on the list yeah. at, a, at a lower point, it, it's, it will be on the list at, at some point. I should also mention that these were slated, um, I believe, Kole Kole was 2023 and, and Hakalau was 2024 is when repairs were supposed to begin. But one of the things that that was contingent on is that the county bridges on the old Mamalahoa were repaired as well so that we had that alternate route. But those are, are still both closed. I hope they get the opportunity to repair those. Mm-hmm. That's another nice drive too is old Mamalahoa. It is, yeah. And the bridges, you know, the, they're of great historical value, the ones on old Mamalahoa. They're beautiful bridges, beautiful areas. Both of them were damaged by Hurricane Lane and pretty significantly undercut. So we're hoping to get FEMA funding. They are in the process of seeking FEMA funding for those two bridges. And the county has already appropriated some funds as well towards their repair. 
is there anything else you need the public to know about the the repairs or the timeline or how to avoid traffic? Just continue to caution people to drive carefully in the area. Traffic may be backed up to plan ahead and we'll put out information as as soon as we get it if we have any updates on the status and yeah, just encourage everyone to stay safe out there. Great. Thank you so much for your time, Council Member. All right. Thank you. That was Hawaii County Council Member Heather Kimball talking with our Russell Subiono about the Kolikoli Bridge on the Big Island. Support for HPR comes from Kaiser Permanente, focused on providing care that puts patients at the center. Teams of doctors, nurses, and specialists stay synced with electronic medical reports. kp.org. Kaiser Permanente. Thrive. Hi, I'm tech reporter Bobby Allen. NPR got its start 50 years ago and almost didn't last too long. It turns out microphones and reporters cost money. Thankfully, listeners around the country contributed, and here we are, half a century later. Back then, if you wanted to donate, you had to mail in a check. Now, it's faster and easier than ever to support this NPR station. Here's how. Become a new sustaining member at $10 a month at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from ProService Hawaii, whose team is committed to helping businesses overcome the challenges of HR today. ProService.com slash HR experts or by calling 808-207-7634. After a scathing audit earlier this year, the Agricultural Development Corporation is asking for more time to address its problems. But do lawmakers feel the ag agency deserves a break? That's the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Blaze Level on the line today. Good morning. Hey, Catherine. So the ADC, it was set up, it was supposed to what, cut through a lot of red tape in order to meet our ag goals, but has it done that? Yeah, the ADC, that's the Agribusiness Development Corporation. Lawmakers set that up in 1994 to do just that, cut through all the government red tape and get uh, some farmers and new ag products on all those old pineapple and sugar lands that were abandoned once the plantations uh, all collapsed. And the scathing audit earlier this year had three major findings. One, the agency didn't do enough in the past 25 years to fill the void left by big sugar and pineapple. Uh, Number two, they struggle with land management, specifically the records the auditor says are inconsistent, incomplete, and in many cases non-existent. And the third major finding was that the ADC's board of directors is not providing enough oversight and guidance to the agency in in doing its work. And, you know, this is all coming about at a really important time for Hawaii. The pandemic really exposed how much, how, how vulnerable the state is when it comes to food sustainability. As you and your listeners know, we import most of the foods that we consume here in Hawaii. And there's been a major push in government and in the legislature in the past couple of years to try to improve that. And many see the ADC as being a key part of that solution and, and a part that's not yet working or firing on all cylinders yet. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, now more than ever, uh, ag's importance to our economy has just been showcased. And you know, we need champions out there that are going to uh, deliver the goods and, and help us make us more resilient and sustainable. Yeah, and in the past couple of years, I've sensed some frustration from lawmakers in this area. Uh, State Auditor Les Kondo said that the ADC is the number one agency he's gotten the most requests to audit <laughs> since mm-hmm. he took office a few years back, including by lawmakers. And, and yesterday, uh, during this House investigative committee, when lawmakers were asking about those three major findings I just mentioned, the ADC leadership basically said they they need more time. And that, that this whole investigative committee is set up and it's doing this probe and it's subpoenaing records and it's subpoenaing people to come testify, you know, it indicates that they've, they've kind of lost patience with this agency and they, wanna, they want them to start 
doing some work. And, and to the ADC's credit, you know, the auditor also came out with these 28 other recommendations. Uh, the uh, corporation says they are getting to at least 13 of them so far and working on others. Uh, the ADC also contends that most of its tillable land is occupied by farmers, uh, and they're growing a range of crops like papaya, sweet potatoes, uh, coffee, Christmas trees. Uh, on Friday, last week Friday, lawmakers had a site visit to a food hub that the ADC is uh, running in partnership with UH. The idea is to get some value-added products. But the, the big idea that I think the lawmakers want is for them to address these three big findings that they haven't done enough to reinvigorate old sugar and pineapple lands and you know turn it into something whether that be crops or anything that we can use to you know get more locally food more local food grown and i think you know one big criticism that the audit uh, you know underscored is that the agency should have rules and policies and it doesn't and i mean you'd think that you know those are best best practices whether you're a government agency or a or a corporation uh, that's one of the things that the agency actually pushed back on. In some areas, it says rules might slow its work, and uh, y- you know they don't want it. And that caught a lot of criticism from lawmakers. They said, uh, "Slow or not, you need to have this. This you need some guiding policies to you know guide your path moving forward, even when your staff is gone." Uh, the executive director famously earlier was quoted as saying that he doesn't need a plan because it's all in his head. That was another uh, uh, point of criticism and contention among lawmakers yesterday. Yeah, well, and the hearing, uh, the hearings continue tomorrow with the state ag director, so it should be interesting to, to watch. But thanks so much, Blaze. Thanks. That was reporter Blaze Level with today's Reality Check. To read his story online, visit civilbeat.org. A new leadership initiative at the William S. Richardson School of Law aims in part to address the need for greater diversity and representation among Hawaii's legal professionals. HPR reporter Kuvei Hirishi joins us this morning. Hi, Kuvei. Aloha, Catherine. Uh, you know, this, this issue around the need for, for greater diversity and representation among Hawaii's legal professionals was sort of front and center back in July during uh, judicial nomination hearings for, for Governor David Ige's pick, uh, Daniel Gluck, uh, former head of the State Ethics Commission, to uh, sit on the uh, State Intermediate Court of Appeals. Now, this was uh, a situation where we had a, a white man with comparatively less trial experience chosen uh, over, at the time, four women, three of whom uh, were Native Hawaiian and, and a Filipino man. Uh, we know, he, you know, Gluck eventually withdrew his name for consideration, partly in response to this overwhelming public testimony criticizing the lack of diversity on, on Hawaii's uh, highest court. But the response from the EGA administration was that this is largely a, a pipeline issue, right? We don't have the applicants uh, applying uh, who are female or who are from underrepresented communities. And so part of what this new leadership program at uh, the UH William S. Richardson uh, School of Law is doing or aims to do is to equip these students with the tools for leadership, but also the mindset of of seeing themselves in these leadership positions, especially for those, as I mentioned, uh, from underrepresented communities. Uh, We spoke to Camille Nelson, uh, the dean there at at uh, Richardson's and the first female to hold that position in, in the institution sort of 50 years. And, you know, she says accomplishments like that, being a black female immigrant from Jamaica, she's often uh, had many firsts in, in her uh, in her career, but she never set out to, to break those barriers. And like her, uh, many of the students at the, at the law school aren't aware that they may be the first in their family. Uh, to to take on these leadership roles. And so the, the driving force behind this island leadership lab is really uh, giving them the tools uh, that she wished she had. Uh, here's Nelson. I wish I had a course like this when I was in law school because, you know, some people think of themselves as natural leaders and some people are anointed 
sort of early in their lives and identified early in their lives as future leaders. And then some of us are never given that sort of tap on the shoulder, hug or embrace to even think about the possibility of leading in some space. And so I think, you know, I, you know, talent is everywhere, but opportunity is not. And this is, an, this is a chance for us to speak to that opportunity to also identify those students and support those students who've never been encouraged to think of themselves as, as leaders and as making a difference in spaces that they're passionate about. So Nelson's this program, the Island Leadership uh, Lab pilot program launches next month. Uh, at the law school, and it's really to give uh, law students that real-world experience in terms of, you know, dimensions of leadership and how to have difficult conversations. Um, it, it's interesting. On diversity. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because you know, uh, culturally, you know, there there may be some groups that, uh, you know, it's not in their nature to, you know, beat their chest uh, and right. and seek the limelight. Right, and it, it's finding out um, each individual's sort of strengths and making them aware or self-aware of those strengths, and then also to reach out to strengthen their what would be their, their challenges and the weaknesses that perhaps they can um, work on to, to really be available and, and so that there isn't this uh, sort of um, line of or this myth that there's just not enough qualified people from these underrepresented communities. Nelson wants to debunk that myth and and really have this pool because the local you know UH Law School is the the feeder school for uh, the local legal community, and so having the graduates uh, be given that opportunity to to work on their skills before they graduate is is part of the plan. So, what is the plan for this uh, program? They've got uh, we've got former Honolulu Mayor Kurt Caldwell, former U.S. Attorney Kenji Price, sort of these uh, leaders in the community already who are going to come in and really sit down and have one-on-one conversations uh, with these students about leadership, about the dimensions of it, and and what they think about diversity and equity and inclusion in a way that sort of gets them ready for those conversations once they're out there, and it might not be only in legal spaces, they might be uh, leaders in the community or the leaders of a nonprofit, but taking uh, more time to hone those leadership abilities in students who may not, you know, have known that they will soon become leaders is part of uh, what what Nelson is aiming to do with this program. Yeah, so they may not, uh, uh, you know, that may not be a goal of theirs to be, you know, the the head of the UH Law School, uh, or right. a, or a judge, but uh, gosh, to be open to those ideas and uh, I guess to have some confidence that they can, you know, they can be up to the task. Definitely, and and the tools, right, to to have those difficult conversations and to uh, sort of carry all of that responsibility with them uh, into these new realms. All right. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Kuvehi. Mahalo. We have been talking to HBR's Ku'uve Hirishi about the need for greater diversity in our legal professionals. You can read her story online at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art. The Great Wave off Kanagawa returns as the final installation in the exhibition Hokusai's Mount Fuji from September 23rd to October 3rd. HonoluluMuseum.org. I'm Bert Lum. Today on Bike Marks Cafe, we'll get a behind-the-scenes insight into the development of the Smart Health Card. We'll also learn about the Commons Project and why Hawaii and many other states have adopted this platform as the back-end verifier. That's today at 6.30 p.m. on Bite Marks Cafe. Let's do a little fill-in-the-blanks here. White-tailed tropic birds are best known for their, you guessed it, Long white tail feathers. They can be found throughout oceans in the, right again, tropics. And they are the subject of today's Manu Minute. We've got their calls thanks to the McCulley Library at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Here's Professor Patrick Hart. 
White-tailed tropic birds, or kua'ekea, are possibly the most distinctive seabirds we might commonly see on the main Hawaiian islands. Bright white with striking black bars across the top of their wings, they have two long streaming tail feathers that sets them apart from all other birds. These feathers are found on both males and females and are mostly used for displays as they don't seem to help at all for flight. As their English name suggests, Kauaikea are found only in tropical oceans worldwide. The ones that live in Hawaii will often fly hundreds of miles out to sea to find food and unlike other seabirds, prefer to mostly forage alone or in small groups. They're known for their spectacular plunge dives from high altitudes into the water to capture small fish and squid, and they can even catch flying fish in flight. Their calls have been described as harsh, raspy, and less than pleasant, though I'm not so sure I agree, but see what you think. On the main Hawaiian islands, kua'ekea are most often seen and heard as they gracefully soar near rocky cliff faces. They nest mostly in crevices and cavities in inaccessible cliffs or crater walls. Because of this, they're very hard to study, but we do know that they generally lay just a single egg each spring following a brief but affectionate aerial courting display. And if nesting is successful, the chick leaves the nest and is on its own about four months later. The long tail feathers of kua'ekea have been used in featherwork in Hawaii and around the world. Their populations seem to be relatively stable, but they're very susceptible to increasing levels of marine plastic that's making its way into their food. For Hawaii Public Radio, this is Patrick Hart from the UH Hilo Biology Department. Support for Manu Minute comes from Ken and Patty Kupchak for the Friends of Hakalau Forest National Wildlife Refuge, a group of people with a passion for supporting the refuge. More about volunteering at friendsofhakalauforest.org. This morning, a ceremony took place in our nation's capital, marking the exact time that President John F. Kennedy signed the law creating the U.S. Peace Corps. Today, we caught up with a former Peace Corps volunteer who we first met back in uh, of a few years ago in Madagascar. Hilo's Kamakadias just got hired as a Peace Corps recruiter at UH Manoa. He worked with Central Pacific Bank on a campaign for financial literacy with his efforts to pay off his student debt in a year. He was successful. He did it in 11 months. He credits lessons learned while raising money for a computer lab for students in his village in Madagascar. One of my secondary projects was raising money for a computer lab. So we ended up raising $3,000 and getting 11 computers for my community. And then I got back at the end of 2019 and I had this crazy idea to pay off $50,000 of student loans in one year just by doing a bunch of odd jobs, asking people what could I do to help them, help me, and not charging anything. It's all donation-based. So I, I did that starting January 6, 2020. And, you know, the pandemic came in March. That slowed things down. But I was still able to persevere and you know get the community support and finish in early December, so about 11 months. I mean, that's awesome. <laughs> it's have, crazy. You have such a passion for your projects. I think that's what comes through. Yeah, you know, I think I get hyper-focused on some things if I really believe in it. I got some projects now that I'm really passionate about. But, yeah, it's just I, I think I like doing things with the community. And so your experience with the Peace Corps, you know, you've been able to parlay that now into a position where you're actually recruiting other young people to get involved and go explore the world. Yeah, I think it's super cool how it worked out. One of the previous Peace Corps uh, recruiter at University of Hawaii was this girl, Stephanie, and she was in Peace Corps Madagascar with me. She came to UH to go to grad school. So she suggested that I apply for the position because she just went to New York to finish her uh, PhD. So, I mean, I have big shoes to fill, but I love talking about the Peace Corps. It's the most transformative experience of my life. So I feel comfortable and happy that I got the position and I'm happy to you know, share my knowledge and perspective with anybody at UH Manoa or anyone that's just interested in joining the Peace Corps. I mean, you don't come back and see the world the same. We've been following your journey, and, and we were excited to learn that you did some uh, financial literacy projects with the local bank. Oh, yeah, yeah. So 
you know, one, one thing leads to another. And that's just, you know, just by putting yourself out there and stepping outside your comfort zone, I believe. And then, so like after I finished the race of 50K, I, I mean, I'm that crazy student loan guy. <laughs> so they reached out to me to um, do this series to educate the youth on financial literacy, because I do believe it's something that we lack here in Hawaii especially in the youth, even me, you know, when I was in college, that's how I racked up all that student debt. I, I, I didn't do much scholarships or, you know, I, I just didn't know, you know. So I was happy that they partnered with me and I'm actually still partnering with them for something else coming up. But yeah, it's cool. I, I'm still young. I feel old because I just feel like I've experienced a lot in such a short amount of life, you know. As we mark this week of the anniversary of the Peace Corps, you know, there is that exhibit at the University of Hawaii Hamilton Library, mm -hmm. which it tips the hat to the volunteer experience. The exhibit honors Phil Olson, one of the early volunteers. And then you as a young Peace Corps volunteer who has returned and is just, you're making waves in your community as well. Yeah, I think that's the most important thing is to, you know, leave and then come back. I always say roam and come home because we can only learn so much here and where you don't realize how small this place is until you leave and you see what else is out there and i think that's important what i like to encourage people living here to go and explore and you know come back and share what you've learned you know with your friends your ohana your your community because like a lot of times they just don't know what's out there you know and it's just it's cool to share a new perspective for example like when i was in madagascar one thing i wrote about on my blog which i just turned into a book i published a book by the way okay. <laughs> um, so one of the things I wrote about was being a haole in Madagascar because it was a new perspective because I've lived here in Hawaii as a local my entire life. But once I went over there, I was, you know, a you're foreigner. A, you're an I outsider. Was, and I'm not like, you know, really fair skin. And it depends if I go in the sun or not. But they have a word, vaza, which is the same as haole. So going over there and being considered a vaza, a haole, was an interesting thing to go through, you know, because like, no, I'm, I'm not a haole, you know, I'm the local. I, I, I just grew up like that. So it was really weird being in, in their shoes, you know. And then I learned a lot of things about myself and like saw, saw it in a new perspective where it's like I'm trying to speak their language. I'm trying to dress like them. I'm trying to eat their food. But I, I wasn't doing it, you know, to be disrespectful because a lot of times us locals were like, oh, why are they doing that? You know, like pronouncing or saying aloha or mahalo in very bad pronunciation. But then I realized I'm doing the exact same thing in Madagascar, you know? So something like that, just like flipping your perspective a lot. It only happens when you go into new territory. And, you know, I just think, too, about the technology today. I mean, you were able to blog while you were having this wonderful experience. And I found out about you through a friend who was working in the Far East. Mm -hmm. and, and so that was our connection. But when you see the marvelous way that the technology can bring us together as a community. It's just amazing. Yeah. And it's really interesting to hear the different experience like my generation has as a, like a newer volunteer compared to like people in the 70s, the 80s, you know, when there wasn't any technology, they couldn't keep in touch with their family. They would literally send letters. And here, you know, we can just go to the city, go find some Wi-Fi, FaceTime with our family and friends. So... Yeah, it's really cool the different perspectives you have of Peace Corps. Yeah, very different from yeah. snail mail. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's what I thought I was going to have to do. It was like when I left, I was like, oh, I'll, I'll talk to you guys every, once every six months. And then we go there. We're like, okay, here's your SIM card. Go over here if you want some Wi-Fi. <laughs> I'm like, what? Yeah, <laughs> it's almost like you didn't leave home, right? Yeah, <laughs> in yeah. a way, in yeah. a way. You mentioned that you found out that you love working in the community. Mm -hmm. Talk about some of the things that you've done since you've been home. So since I've been home, I did the race to 50K and that was really community driven. It was cool because it wasn't like I got a nine to five job. It was people who were reaching out that actually needed help. You know, like, can you help me move this out of my house? Can you come clean my yard? Can you do this for my auntie? Can you drop this off for my girlfriend, my boyfriend, whatever? So it, it made me feel really good because like it's like we were helping each other. It was like reciprocated, you know, so I, I really crave that, you know like koko aku koko mai, like help out, you know, and then receive help as well. So um, during the, the end of the pandemic, I started this thing called Hawaiiverse with my friends. I was actually brought on to the project and it's this online directory to support local businesses because 
you know, especially now, you know, you just see businesses closing left and right. And I think supporting local is super important, keeping it local. So that's one of my big passions is this supporting local communities, supporting the businesses, the people, artists, you know, not not just the businesses, but like everything to do with local. So I'm working with Hawaiiverse and we got some big things coming and where we're hoping that, you know, we can kind of change the landscape of the islands with just like shifting people's mindset to supporting local. And so you what spotlight then local businesses? Yeah, uh, we, we have a directory where we offer discounts to local businesses. We started with 40 businesses in Hilo last year. We've grown to over a thousand businesses on multiple islands. So we have that. And I, w- I host a spotlight series where we go to businesses. We talk story, we highlight their product or service. And now we're going into podcasting as well. And we also have an e-commerce section of our site where we're trying to become like the Amazon of Hawaii. Just so, you know, people can have this like one stop shop to buy local products instead of, you know, going to Amazon and supporting a big corporation that you know, doesn't really care about you per se, you know. And so how would you say, let's say your experience in Madagascar helped prepare you for what you're doing? Well, I think uh, being in the Peace Corps, it's super community based, especially at the grassroots level. You're like you 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 survive by being part of your community, you know. By going out and talking with people, trying to collaborate on projects, even going down to the market and just bargaining for food and building those relationships. So I think just being put in that situation where I just had to like fend for myself and figure things out and figure out how to work with people in a community to achieve a common goal. I think that that gave me a lot of confidence and especially doing it in another language, you know, <laughs> it, g- it gave me a lot of confidence to do everything that I- I'm doing now. I-, I just feel like, you know, there's no limits. Like I, if I can do that, I- if I can survive Peace Corps, I, I can do anything, you know, <laughs> that's really how I feel, especially with like, getting sick or whatever. Yeah. And so you, yeah, you work with what you've got. Yeah, exactly. You got to be resourceful. And with this pandemic, I, I'm sure there are, you know, volunteers who had their contracts cut short. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've been able to talk to any of your friends out there, any other volunteers. Yeah, uh, I actually just had a, a Peace Corps Madagascar reunion a couple of days ago. And I was good to see some familiar faces and some new faces as well. But yeah, I, I talked with some some volunteers that came after me. So so I finished my service at the end of 2019, which was like a couple months before it all shut down. So I got lucky, but like a lot of people, they were super bummed. And I, I think we might have talked about it too for a little bit, but it was, it was really sad because it is a like a big part of your life. And like, it's sad leaving your family, you know, the life that you created over there and just like having that, that worry about like, we'll be okay here we have you know resources we have medical facilities and but you know people in developing countries they don't really have access to those things all the time so it's like leaving and not knowing if you're going to see somebody again i think that that's pretty hard you know yeah and what's the one thing you miss in madagascar uh the rice nah. <laughs> I, I i do have a tattoo of rice on me because <laughs> rice is life in madagascar but i think just the people my my Peace Corps family and my you know the Malagasy people. Uh, we I'm still in in contact with some people over Facebook, but it's such a unique experience. You know, you get really close with people really quickly, and you don't really see that. You know, like I wake up in the morning, go outside, walk to my classes, and I say hi to every single person in the community. You know, you're saying manona salama, yeah, you know, good morning to every single person. And like here, everyone's kind of just doing their own thing. Just, head down, looking at their phone. So, yeah, I really miss that that human connection. I, I feel like that's really lost in, you know, today's society. So I think that's the biggest thing, you know. So when you talk to, uh, let's say, students on the campus or, I don't know, maybe faculty who you mm-hmm. may want to rope into this, uh, I guess, how do you sell it? I wouldn't be where I am today without the Peace Corps. I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing without Peace Corps. I just tell them, if you're looking for an adventure, a challenge, you want to grow as an individual and, you know, help out. You know, you're not going to change the world, but, you know, you can make an impact in some people's lives and especially yours, you know. That's that's one of, like, I always think, like, Peace Corps is, like, the most 
selfless, selfish thing you can do. You know, because I feel no matter what you do, I could buy 500 computers for everyone in Madagascar, and I still wouldn't feel like I gave them more than they gave me, you know? Because what you receive as a Peace Corps volunteer is much more than you could ever give back. That was Helos Kamakadias, now a recruiter for the Peace Corps program at UH Manoa. We should mention that a collection of video clips of interviews of returned Peace Corps volunteers is available to view on YouTube. You may be surprised to recognize faces in our community. And while we're on the subject of Peace Corps, we received this voicemail on our talkback line from a listener who heard yesterday's story on the Peace Corps exhibit at the University of Hawaii. Aloha, this is Vinny Lanier's Gilan Maui, a retired UH professor at the University of Hawaii Maui College. I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Chuuk, Truk, Micronesia from 1968 to 1971, and then I worked for the Trust Territory government. And I just wanted to say that uh, it was very interesting to me that the connection between Micronesia and Hawaii, as was made possible through Mao, the navigator, who once spent some time in my living room in Molin Truk because of Mike McCormick, who lives on the Big Island, who connected Mao with the Ukulele Foundation and all that. And I was just thinking of that as a very important part of my life. After it happened, you know, Mao, I met Mao before it was anybody famous, and then that all happened, and it just uh, six degrees of separation. So uh, I wanted to report that. The connection between Micronesia, the other islands of Yap and Chuuk, and the Ukulele, and all that has transpired since. Thank you very much. I hope this makes sense. <laughs> Goodbye. Mahalo, Vinny. Mahalo, Mao. Mahalo, Mike McCormick. Uh, mahalo, Peace Corps, for all those connections. If you listen to an interview on our show and would like to share the story, call our talkback line, 808-792-8217, or send an email to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. And we've run out of time, but up tomorrow, we plan to hear from Hilton Rachel of the Hawaii Healthcare Association. We invite you to post your comments on Facebook at The Conversation, HPR, or tweet us here at HI Conversation. Want to listen back to something you heard? Find our archive shows online. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.